Numerous reports indicate that manufacturing is emerged as the favored target of ransomware groups and hackers. In response, a new report from Industrial Media discusses the evolution of industrial cybersecurity, its current state, and the tactics hackers are using, including phishing schemes, malware, and ransomware attacks. It also details solutions in Army manufacturers with the knowledge and resources needed to win more fights on this highly complex and ultra-competitive battlefield. Download the industrial sector's new battlefield by going to manufacturing.net backslash cyber. Hi, I'm Jeff Ranke, Editorial Director of Manufacturing.net and Manufacturing Business Technology. Welcome to Security Breach. Late last year, we discussed LockBit's ransomware attack on Boeing and the ensuing cyber incident that resulted in a large quantity of the aerospace giant's data being stolen. One of the experts we tapped into in breaking down the attack and its fallout was no before's Eric Cron. You can check that episode out in the archives. In addition to his extensive knowledge on threat actors like LockBit, Eric also has a tremendous amount of insight on a number of cybersecurity challenges that continue to plague the industrial sector. This includes how to best address many of the human factors that are often under-addressed during cyber defense planning. His insight seems especially timely given that one of the most significant vulnerabilities uncovered in the last month or so stems from the hacktivist group, the Cyber Avengers, using unchanged default passwords to access Unitronics PLCs in water treatment facilities and manufacturing plants in the U.S., like breweries. If you'd like more information about that exploit, I'd encourage you to check out the link in this episode's description. But just like Colonial Pipeline and numerous other attacks, this global vulnerability started with the actions or inactions of a human being. So with that in mind, here's some additional insight from Eric Cron at Know Before. But maybe you can talk to us a little bit about your company, uh, Know Before, and some of the things that you do and offer to help support manufacturers in their efforts. Yeah, so Know Before, what we do is we tackle the human side of cybersecurity, right? Technology's great. Um, I'm a geek. I, I love it. I have a little <laughs> single board computer at my desk. I mean, I love technology. But one of the things I learned throughout my career, which started back in the 1990s, is that technology isn't enough. Um, the people tend to get targeted. And the number one way that ransomware and so many other types of attacks happen is through targeting the human. So our goal at Know Before, we do a security awareness training program uh, platform, and we can do some simulated phishing attacks also. So uh, we have like thousands of training programs and then the simulated piece. And the whole idea is to help get people aware of how to protect themselves from email phishing, from voice phishing, even from things like picking up USB drives in the parking lot and plugging it in because they're curious, right? Yeah. That's that's our whole goal is to try to tackle that human side so that the people have a chance to protect themselves and the organizations, because clearly we just can't rely on technology as good as it is. It's still sadly not enough. Love to hear you talk about the human factor that's become so much more prominent when we talk about cyber defense plans, regardless of the industry. And and it kind of leads into my next question, because you mentioned about the things that happened with Clorox. Um, there have been other similar type supply chain type of attacks. We saw one with Dole Foods, and it just spirals. It spirals from the fact that it's a ransomware attack. Then you get into some of the credential harvesting or data harvesting, and that's a separate business model for a lot of these ransomware organizations where they can sell it on the dark web. And what it really starts on is some of the, what I always call the blocking and tackling elements of cybersecurity. So when you look at some of these, and I understand it's a 
big pie to try to take a bite out of. But but where can manufacturers in particular, where can they start? What are some things that they might be able to do just to get the ball rolling in terms of upgrading and enhancing their cybersecurity plans? Well, clearly, I mean, I'm very passionate about this. <laughs> the first thing you can do is work on in, in on educating your employees, right? Teach them how to deal with these kinds of emails that come in far too often. It's just like, oh, well, we have filters in place. We have that, right? That's got to be a piece of this. Um, from there, organizations need to have some sort of DLP or data loss prevention controls in place because data is getting moved out of these networks and very large amounts. I think what they got from Boeing is somewhere around 43 gigabytes of data that they've pulled out, which is quite a bit of data to just kind of yank out, you know, and, and not be spotted. So that kind of stuff. And they're fairly common these days. It's not like it's uh, one of those uh, things that that is absolutely unaffordable for everybody. But data loss prevention, it looks at the data leaving your network too and tries to say, hey, maybe we should do something with this, right? And then some of the basics, I think, are oftentimes... Um, overlooked. And so while I say that people are targeted, what happens is the people get them in the network the initial time, right? So they get them kind of a little foothold, but from there, they have to do a lot of other stuff. They try to get administrative privileges. They use other tools. Um, they're looking for computers within your network that aren't patched, that are behind on patching, um, that have vulnerable software. They're looking for uh, reused passwords or poor passwords, right? Those the really clever ones like QWERTY, right? Um, all of this stuff is in lists that they can get, yeah. and they have tools that will try this on all these accounts. So it, once they're in there, we need to be looking for uh, the types of traffic that they're doing there, and there's lots of tools for that. Um, but we need to understand that the 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 high end stuff, like the, the, the really tricky stuff happens once they're in the network. Um, and unfortunately that's where they take advantage of things like zero days. And it's very hard for an organization. Like if this turns out, it was a Citrix zero day, like move it was zero days. There's really, it's, it's very difficult to prevent that. It's very, because nobody has a patch for it yet. You don't even know what you're looking for yet. In some cases, Somebody goes, oh, well, here's a proof of concept. I think this will work. And, you know, in 20 minutes, the, the bad actors are out there hitting everybody with it. So it's really hard to deal with that. So you have to have those foundations in place, right? Good passwords. Um, make sure that not everybody is an admin, right? I I, I would I worked in a place, we were 130,000 square foot under roof aerospace machining place, all right? And honestly, when I came in as an IT manager, the receptionist was a domain admin and that kind of practice isn't is just not going to be good during times like this right but unfortunately a lot of people a lot of organizations you know they're they're manufacturing that's their key they want to make parts they want to make widgets technology is not something that they love to deal with and so they don't they don't tackle those basics like that no, there's way too many instances that I've uncovered as well that have a similar dynamic where people have the type of access that is, it's kind of frightening because they probably don't also have the security training to make sure they're protecting all of those things the appropriate way. You know, you, you mentioned um, patches a couple of different times. Patches in manufacturing are really, really tough 
because even once we have the patch, you got to shut everything down in order to apply it. What type of insight or advice or thoughts might you have in helping manufacturers approach that patching dynamic a little less painfully maybe? Yeah. Well, the first thing is know what you have on the network that needs to be patched, which I know that sounds very, very simple, but a lot of places they don't really know. And then they start something, go, oh, wait a minute, that patch caused this not to work. Oh, that doesn't work over there too. Who knew the TV was on the network, right? It's these sorts of things that that kind of happen. So you need to know what you have on your network um, and, and you need to plan it well. Um, one of the things that we did, I, I worked with the government for quite a while and we we adopted um, an ITIL framework. And one of the things we did that really helped us uh, not cause each other problems from area to area is we started coordinating when we were going to do patches, when it was going to happen based on the different teams. So the network team wouldn't take down the network while the active directory team is trying to patch their servers. Right. And it, it all sounds so simple, but when you're in a place with these moving parts like that, that happened, that caused us some issues when it comes to the downtime, you almost got to kind of build it in these days, because if you think about it, Okay, you may be down for an hour or so. You may have to stop the line for an hour to run these patches on these machines. But you start looking at like MGM, it was 10 days of downtime. That's a lot of hours <laughs> that could have been invested in doing these patches. So it comes down to coordination. It comes down to timing it. And it comes down to honestly just having to realize that this is as much a priority as having having parts come off the other end of the line. It has to be that big a priority because if it's not, you can be down for a much longer time. And the cost of that, um, it, when it comes out of the blue, can just be staggering. No, great points, Eric. And, and, you know, we have a lot of new machine learning and AI involved in manufacturing that not only comes in on the cybersecurity side, but also allows for a lot of predictive or preventative maintenance practices. Maybe we're getting to a point where there is enough legacy data where we could start scheduling the same type of downtime for patching or at least providing for it. Might be sort of part of this new normal. We've got new inventory models. Now we need to have new models that can allow us time to get in there, shut stuff down, and apply these patches as you alluded to, it's going to cost a ton of money down the road if you don't. Yeah. And the days of having people stand at a lathe, turning out parts uh, all day long uh, at any kind of scale are pretty much gone. I mean, yeah, there's definitely the niche, the, the niche markets and things, but when it comes down to it, everything's automated. Everything's electronic. If you think about how modern organizations work too, where they're timing materials for next jobs being delivered at the point that they need it right then. So you're not warehousing all this stuff for six months, right? So what happens is when one of these things gets thrown off by something like a ransomware attack that takes down a line for a few days, all of a sudden, all this stuff is backing up. And the nightmare that that creates is something that a lot of organizations don't think about. Um, being able to time these things, being able to coordinate these things and understanding how important your uh, your your timing is when it comes to all this stuff and why you can't afford to be down is a big deal. No, agree 100%. You know, Eric, we've been talking a lot about ransomware here. So one of the things I got to put you on the spot a little bit and I have to ask, 
what is your advice? Do you pay the ransom? We know that Boeing's been probably negotiating. You referenced the Clorox report. It's thought that Clorox probably paid. We go back to Colonial Pipeline. We know they paid with some help from um, Homeland Security, and there's a lot more involved there. But by and large, how do you play this one out? Yeah, I'm going to start this with a heavy sigh. Okay, this is <laughs> this is just one of those things where it, it's it's unfortunate. Okay, we we see a lot of stuff where even the governments tried to say, you know, we're going to pass laws that you can't pay ransoms. Okay, that's that's awesome. It sounds good. You're rattling a saber right there. Okay, people say the FBI says don't pay ransoms, and yes, that's true. That is their general overall guidance. Now I've talked to a number of special agents. I've worked with people and their, their idea is don't pay the ransom unless you have to. Right. <laughs> so what are you going to do? You're going to take a, a mom and pop organization that's been around or, or something that's been family driven since, you know, 1932 or something like that. And you're going to say, no, we'd rather close up shop, lay off all of these employees, do all of this kind of stuff because we got hit with ransomware and don't want to spend a hundred grand or, you know, whatever it is that the ransom happens to be, you know, that's a business decision and it's got to be a business decision. All right. Frankly, I think organizations need to think about that before it pops up too. And you need to have an idea of where you're going to go with that. Is this something that you're going to say absolutely not? And how absolutely not is that, right? <laughs> like if, if the president of the company is going, we are absolutely not paying a ransom. And then there's a an emergency board meeting that says, oh, yes, you are, right? <laughs> you need to have that stuff in mind because it can be the difference between an organization shutting down Laying off all these people or paying a little bit. I think what's more important about this, Jeff, what's most important about all this is that if it happens and if you have to pay that ransom, okay, um, you know, we'll wave your finger at you, but in the same breath, just make sure it doesn't happen again and spread the word to other people and let them know how serious this is so that they don't think, oh, it's not a big deal. Because that's what I find is a lot of organizations, they come out of the other end of this and they're like, I had no idea. So we need, if you're going to pay the ransom to keep the doors open, by all means. But make sure that, that you now help other people avoid that. The other thing that we do have to understand too is even if you pay the ransom, that doesn't mean that you're going to get all of your files back. Generally speaking, you get most of them. But some of them are damaged in the encryption piece. And it could just be bad luck that the most important file you need was damaged, right? Uh, and there's no fixing that at that point. The other thing to understand, and you kind of mentioned it too, is the information that's stolen. Now, if you pay the ransom, they swear they're going to delete it, right? It's a pinky promise. <laughs> and we all know that they're trustworthy criminals that have now done this to us in the first place, right? So do we trust them to say they're going to delete this information, not turn around and sell it on the dark web with all of your credentials, with all of your information there that's of value to them, right? What would stop them from doing it? Would it be, you know, their honesty? Because I don't see it happening. Yeah. So we have to, you know, we have to figure out um, that's pretty significant right there. Also, I mean, even if you pay the ransom, there's just no guarantees with these folks. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, a, a ton of great points. And we could talk 
much more, much more in depth on, on all of these areas here. I mean, it's, it's an intriguing conversation as far as where, when do you learn that lesson? And ideally, you know, a big part of this too, especially with manufacturers, is once they get in, if they do pay the ransom, we hear a lot of dwelling attacks where that first ransom, they get hit, and they don't they don't take hit you too hard in terms of a dollar amount. It's a quick recovery, quick files back. That's because they know you can't see them, and they're still in the system, and in six months they do the exact same thing until you can kick them out. So that, that visibility within the OT infrastructure is getting so vitally important for manufacturers. Well, and that's an underestimation from a lot of places too is the cost of fixing that piece. It's more than the ransom. Um, Sophos, yeah. pretty well-known, or they say it at least doubles if you pay the ransom. It's going to cost you at least as much as the ransom, which right now I think is averaging about a mil and a half is the average paid ransom um you've got to get them out of your system so you've got to have you know these uh you know people like uh, uh the the really smart geeks come in and look around and figure out how did they get in what did they do because they're leaving back doors behind right they've got to be gone there was a place in the uk they got hit it was 2.4 million pounds is what they paid okay and they got their stuff back up. They'd been running about 30 days later. They got everything up and running, but they didn't get the bad actors out. So the bad actors hit the go button again. Another $2.4 million went out to them. They paid, they had to pay again to get everything back up and running. There's so much more to it cost wise. And, and those other issues that roll down later that then people under understand it's very underestimated. But you're right, they have to get them out of the system. And that's expensive. The more complicated your system is, um, the bigger it is, the less you know what you actually have, the more expensive it is. Because it's you know, it, it's not always about your main systems. If there's a smaller system running over here, they can put a back door right in that little place. And anytime they want, they just swing it open. No, the connected enterprise leaves so many other, so many options, so many vulnerabilities, so many soft, point, soft spots for the hackers to get at. I love the other point you made too about sharing information. That's one thing that's gotten a lot better, I would say, in the last 12 to 18 months, but still needs to improve dramatically in terms of us not being so scared to share this, this data and this information. We've got the MITRE database and some other tools out there. But in your opinion, Eric, are there maybe are there other things that we might be able to do to help share some of this information so that we can collectively become that much stronger, make the hacker's job that much harder? Well, it, it's a it's a tough thing, right? Because, or you you as an organization, you're worried about you know your uh, your reputation and stuff. So nobody wants to come up and say, "Up oh, hit by a cyber again." <laughs> yeah. What about that, right? Yeah. Who's going to want to do business with you then, right? But there is the part of it where you do need to own it. And honestly, the response to it, how you deal with it is going to make the biggest difference. Because at this point, we all know that ransomware is out there, right? The first ransomware strain was actually in 1989, if you can believe that. It's called PC Cyborg back then. Um, and, you know, it went away for a while till digital payments started happening. But this is not something new. A lot of places have been hit by it. What gets people in trouble or what gets organizations in trouble is actually where they try to hide it, right? Like what we saw with Uber, what we saw, we've seen some things like that, right? And that looks bad on the organization. Now, you don't necessarily want to go fly the flag and say, hey, check it out. We got hit, right? 
But what you do want to do is you want to say, okay, we, we had a cyber attack. We're dealing with it. We're coping with it. This is where we are, especially if people's personal information is at stake. Very different thing if it's PII or intellectual property, or not PII, but intellectual property, as opposed to PII and things like that of employees and stuff like that. Um, because what I find is a lot of organizations try to keep it quiet now, and then it comes out six months later in an SEC filing that all of their their employee information is out there. And these employees had no idea for six months that they need to protect themselves, right? Um so we need to do that. We need to be upfront and honest, and we need to share with sometimes even the federal authorities, right? And and I know that's scary. Who wants to be like, hey, I'm calling the feds. They're going to come in and check out our system, right? Nobody really wants that, but they're getting much better at sharing information among others, especially in manufacturing. So like IOCs or indicators of compromise. Those can tell you there, there are ways sometimes to see if somebody's in your system before they hit the ransom go button. Okay. You may be able to spot them because of their indicators of compromise. Those, if those are shared, that's great. And a lot of times you can anonymously share with some of the federal authorities, but you go through the FBI, through CISA, um, those groups are, are actually doing wonderful things, even if it is a little bit unnerving to be like, Hey, we got the FBI here, you know, let's give them a login, yeah. right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Get the attorneys involved, make sure you're covered legally. Um, but it's important that we share how this happened. Where did they put their back doors? Cause they're going to have a playbook and they'll oftentimes follow the same thing. Oh, well, they seem to like putting back doors in X, Y, Z. Let's go see if we have that. No, I couldn't agree more. And a lot of those early attacks, they hit financial institutions, they hit insurance companies. Hopefully manufacturing can learn some of those lessons in terms of transparency and, and response in moving forward. So Eric, as we look maybe 12, 18 months down the road here, or even some things you might be seeing right in the present day, what are some of the biggest trends that you're encountering on the cybersecurity front? Okay. Um, tears. <laughs> not of joy. <laughs> no, it is. It's frustrating. And I see yeah. that a lot where organizations are just frustrated. They're like, what do I do? And and some of them are like, hey, you know, if Boeing can't protect themselves, what chance do I have? Right. I'm a 300, mm -hmm. 300 employee shop. Well, okay. Um, that's not always the case. You, you want to make it tough on them. So they'll go to an easier prey. There's so many other places they can go right now. It's kind of one of those, you know, I don't have to beat the bear. I just have to beat the guy next to me, you know, as you're running <laughs> from it. it it's yeah. the same sort. Of, and I hate to put it that way, but you need to harden your stuff so that it's more work than it's worth to get in. Yeah. Um, and you need to watch that. But what's happening is we're seeing this trend of AI now has absolutely exploded. And the reason that really matters is not only do we have ransomware as a service or other malware as a service and service type things going on that are allowing massive amounts of scaling. Now you take something like AI, which can generate emails that don't have grammar errors, that don't have spelling errors, that don't have those tells that we oftentimes tell people to look for. Um, those days are pretty much gone, right? So they're creating those at scale easily. And my big concern is if they're not already doing it, which I can't prove one way or another, but all of these data breaches that we hear about that have this personal information, right? All of this information is out there on, let's say me, 
I was part of the Target breach, the Home Depot breach, the OPM breach, every breach I can think of, unfortunately, I get the notification of. Well, if somebody combines all that stuff, they have an incredible profile of me as a person using AI to parse that and goes, oh, well, here's the interests of this person. These are the things the person is passionate about. You find the emotional passion for people. It could be politics. It could be saving puppies, whatever it is. AI could then generate the attacks and use those to leverage against the individuals. I see that as being where we're going to go with a lot of this AI stuff. Uh, And I think that's one of the bigger issues we're going to have within organizations, within industries moving forward 10 or 12 years. And if we don't teach people who are going to be the targets of those, how to spot them and and how to understand the things that are going on there, uh, we're going to be we're going to be in a lot of trouble. And truth is, spotting something like that is honestly no different than what we're doing now. And it comes back to, I always tell people, if you have an emotional response, strong emotional response to a text message, phone call, or email, take a deep breath and start looking at it. Did it come in at three o'clock in the morning and it's supposed to be our CEO and that was on Saturday? Wait a minute. That's not right. You know, those sorts of things are still going to be there but they're going to be able to get us more emotionally charged more quickly. So we overlook it. No, great points, Eric. Uh, Everything you said there makes total sense. And the one thing I can, I can tell is plugged in as you are to cybersecurity and everything that's going on right now. And you, uh, you started your initial response by saying tears. So there's definitely some, some frustration like you alluded to very simply, what gives you some peace of mind? What helps you sleep at night though? What are some things that are going on that that we know are we're making the right pro- right progress? Well, like so many other things, it's kind of a whack-a-mole game. We're using AI to be better. Yep. We're using that in all fronts, uh, looking at, at the massive amounts of data that's generated through logs and things like that these days that, you know, I, I mean, I've been in the field for a long time, like I said, and and trying to trying to keep up with this stuff the way I did back in the day would be absolutely impossible just with the amount of data we we generate so we've got much better tools that are working on that sort of thing we've got much better insight into how the bad actors are getting in and frankly again something I'm super passionate about I'm seeing more and more organizations taking the employee education piece and taking it seriously and making it a serious real part of their cybersecurity defensive programs, which is something people didn't always do. They kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. it's the old compliance, throw them in a break room, throw some donuts at them. Hey, you're safe. You know, while you're at it, we'll throw some sexual awareness training or sexual harassment training at you. And maybe a couple of HR things. If, you know, if you make it through the day, awesome, you're trained. Okay. We can't do that anymore. And I see more and more organizations coming around to the fact that that's just not going to cut it these days. And we're getting better at, at educating, honestly. Thanks, Eric. And for more information on the work No Before does, you can check them out at knowbefore.com. That's K-N-O-W-B-E, the number four, dot com. Thank you for joining us today. And to catch up on past episodes, you can go to manufacturing.net, IEN.com, or mbtmag.com. You can also check Security Breach out wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Amazon, and Overcast. And if you have a cybersecurity story or topic that you'd like to have us explore on Security Breach, 
you can reach me at jeff at IEN.com. For Eric Cron, I'm Jeff Ranke, and this is Security Breach.